Can you imagine in this year with COVID going through and not having plastics to protect, you know, our first line responders, healthcare workers? You just can't do it. Cars are more fuel efficient are actually safer as a result of plastics. Our foods that are preserved in plastics actually don't break down and create greenhouse gases. They're preserved longer. But the problem is if we don't create a truly circular economy, we use, we dispose, and we put in the environment, and then we see what's going on. I mean, gosh, you go to the beach now and you see plastics all over the place. Tap into the minds of change makers creating real impact on people and our planet. It's time to live your purpose. I'm your host, Dale Wilkinson, and this is Good Makers. Hey, hey, welcome to episode 59 of Good Makers. If this is your first time listening, I interview social entrepreneurs and good humans that have made it their life's mission to come up with solutions to social issues that we're all facing. I interview them to understand why they do it and how they do it so you can learn how to build a meaningful career of your own. And if you're in the market for a new job, head to goodgigs.app and sign up for the weekly job alert. You can customize exactly what jobs are sent to you each week from mission-driven companies that are working on causes that you care about. This episode, I interview Bob Powell, who is the CEO of Brightmark, a company who is on a mission to reimagine waste. They transform organic waste into renewable gas and create innovative approaches to plastics renewal. Bob explains the technology behind what they do, as well as what circularity is and how they're heading in that direction. With all my guests, I want to understand the motivation behind their impact-driven career. And for Bob, that inspiration came from the home he grew up in. My brother and I were raised by a single mom much of our formative years. And my mom is really an amazing individual. And one that I think in this day and time, she could have been pretty much anything she wanted. Really smart, could have changed the world with a mission-oriented company like a Brightmark or you name it, a lot of different areas. When we were growing up, the world was a different place. So very optimistic in spite of some things that in her life she was impacted with. So early on divorced. And so as a single mom trying to raise my brother and myself, there were there were some challenges there. And I remember when I was really young, my mom worked in what we used to call the phone company. There was only one choice. There weren't all these mobile phones and all that. And she worked sort of selling phones. And we didn't have a lot of means. And when I was pretty young, she applied for a job across the street in an office that was basically with uh, all guys, tool belts, jeans, working in, you know, an office doing a bunch of technical and craft type work. And she applied a few times and ultimately got the job. And she was the first woman to in that Atlanta area to have that job as a female. Get it, mom. Yeah, pretty amazing. And it was simple for her. She just wanted to make more money so she could feed us. And uh, so I remember as a kid uh, growing up that my mom would pick us up after school, after she got off of work. And she would say, some of the guys at the office would say uh, things like, 
honey, what are you doing here, right? Hey, this is a man's job, what are you doing? And as a kid, I didn't think about it a lot, but as I got older, I just reflected on it and really, I'm a little angered sometimes by it, but what's amazing is my mom's optimism. My mom is one of the happiest people on the face of the earth, and so there's a goodness in her, and I think that's part of my inspiration, the optimism and the goodness that she had. So Bob got his optimism and outlook on life from his mum, but where did his career start? And what experience led him to starting his own mission-driven company, working on solving really important environmental issues? So early in my career, I helped clients who are in the energy business. I've been doing this for about 30 years or so. And a lot of my clients actually own these big power plants, coal-fired power plants, some that were oil-burning plants that emitted immense amounts of CO2, all kinds of bad particulate uh, matter in the environment. And I helped them analyze diligence, actually helped my clients buy companies internationally overseas. And what happened was, as I started to do my work, I began to come to a realization that there are impacts in these decisions we make. So one of my first realizations and thoughts was flew into Indonesia, got in a taxi, and kids were running around in the streets and playing in sewers about the same age as my son at the time, Sean, who was about five years old. Yeah. Like, wow, you know, I'd never seen this before. Kids happily playing in sewers, open sewers. And that was actually one of the points I just remember vividly thinking, why is this even happening? And then you continue to go through the career where I would look at environmental reports for coal fired plants and look at these ash ponds. And what I would see would be all these uh, trace elements of stuff that's really bad if it gets in the water table. And I remember that my clients were more concerned with quantifying the issue, not trying to prevent it. And for me, that was a really big thing where I said, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. So it's a progression, but my upbringing with my mom, goodness, optimism, and then in my career in the energy industry, just evolving the thinking as I see things, uh, ultimately where I got to point. How long did it take once you were working with those clients and starting to see the impact that what they were doing with the environment, how long did that take before you realized this ain't good? and made a bit of a switch in terms of, I, I want to help fix this. Yeah, this ain't good started about five years into uh, my career there. And I internationally saw a lot of things, but beginning five years in, when I started to see the impacts on our water and our air, you know, in the States, we had the Clean Air Act and we had uh, water legislation as well that was passed they really mandated companies to begin to capture and record the impact of emissions and effluent waste going into the water. And as I started to see those reports, it was pretty, pretty crazy. Right. So that was five years into my career and probably 15 ish years in is really where I said, you know what, I am absolutely going to do something specifically that helps solve the issues here. One of my early realizations beginning in those early five to 10 ish years was one of the problems we have with these issues environmentally and frankly, anything that uh, creates bad impacts is we've got a measurement issue, 
And I started to realize, and so let me tell you what that means. So before in the States, the Clean Air Act and some of the water legislation came out, we didn't measure the impacts of what we now know creates global warming and creates really bad uh, conditions in waterways, oceans, et cetera. So it started with a, we think we have a problem, now let's measure it. And then, oh, damn, we have a problem. <laughs> oh, <laughs> damn, we have a problem, right? Boy, do we have a problem, right? But that isn't where it stops. Measuring it is really an interesting thing. I don't know. Let's go to plastics. I'll give you an example. Do we actually know that when we buy water in a plastic water bottle that could end up out in the environment, does that cost more or less than... If we buy a reusable water bottle, which I try to do, and then reuse it, we don't have good information about the price that it costs, the health impacts that it creates, the environmental impacts. So what we lack, even to this day, is really good information and even incentives, price signals around bad decisions versus better decisions. And then how do we incent people to do good things? And that's really, that's part of the journey that I'm on. When we're talking about incentivizing people, is this uh, the consumers or is this the companies that are actually making the plastics that can't be recycled and you know are doing damage or both? I think it's both. I really do. And hopefully here in the States, but certainly in places like Europe, there are now on the company side, things like extended producer responsibilities, which begin to capture these issues mm-hmm. and ex- extended producer responsibilities really place the onus on the producers of whether it be plastics or other things. Right. But we don't have price signals, cost signals on the consumer side, but I think it's both in order to change behaviors. And I I actually think that it doesn't have to be all punitive. I think, you know, there's a carrot and stick approach to this. So one of our thoughts is in what we do, whether it be our greenhouse gas, renewable natural gas part of our business or the plastic side of our business, if we produce molecules that are green, right, plastics that are remade and don't come out of the ground, then maybe there's a benefit associated with that. The same with renewable natural gas that we produce that is uh, intensely negative carbon because we're offsetting methane and those kinds of things. Shouldn't there be an incentive for people to make those good choices, to to buy the green molecules versus the dirty ones. Yeah. So we can dig into what Brightmark is actually doing. So it's primarily, you got two directions, right? Two ways of recycling waste, and it's taking plastic waste and turning that into fuel and also organic animal waste and turning that into natural gas. Is that correct? That's right. That's exactly right. So 15 years into your career and you realize you want to do something to have an impact on, on this industry that you had been involved with, how did you then progress? What did you do to move on that decision? Did you know what technology to look out for or did you kind of work backwards? It's, you know, plastic, methane, gas is, you know, the big issues. Let's work backward and work out a solution to this. Well, I wish I could say I was like really smart and said, oh, there's this big problem and I'm going to solve it. You know, it's some definitive moment. There is a turning point for me and it wasn't as direct as that. So the turning point for me was when I was recruited to come out to San Francisco and work for the power and gas utility based in San Francisco. 
ended up being the chief financial officer of the utility, PG&E, Pacific Gas Electric Company. And that was the early days of renewable energy. And so that utility and a couple of the other utilities together with the state, I think we're very forward thinking, and that's the state of California, uh, very forward thinking about how to solve these problems. And so what I saw there was a set of ideas around renewable energy. How do we get to 20% of our energy that we purchase at renewable energy and some really smart and passionate people about solving the problem. So the ultimate sort of tipping and turning point for me was being recruited. I could have been recruited to go somewhere else into that company that was part of the early beginnings of solving the problems there. So when I was there, I actually had a friend who left to start his own company that was one of the first solar companies. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Well, I followed him, not at that same company, but the first company I ran about a year and a half later. And I started, I was, the company I ran was one of, the, one of the early solar companies that worked with businesses. And so that all turned for me when I was recruited to come out and went to work for a company that was trying to solve problems. So I left, I ran my own company, we built it. And we had an opportunity to do good there. And then I came to Breitmark later. But that was sort of that turning point for me. And there are a lot of lessons I learned in that first exercise in running my own company. Um, But one of them is there's a progression of solving solutions. And one of the things that I mean uh, by that is back in, that was what, roughly 2008. So in 2008, the price of solar energy was 10 times what it is now. At that time, 10 times was not anywhere close to competitive with, with the marginal cost of buying electricity. But because forward-thinking governments and companies were willing to invest in it, what happened was since 2008, that price, again, is now 10% of what it was then. And renewable energy is now competitive on par and in some cases is more cost competitive than dirtier forms of energy. So part of the learning is there's this journey here and you start at a point and then you move to a better point. And in our business at Brightmark, we see that, right? So there's this, this old quote I think Voltaire had about, don't let perfect be the enemy of good, right? right? And so when I see solutions that we in Brightmark and others are trying to introduce, like in renewable energy, we have to start at a point where we're trying to do good and continually get better so there's a better version of us in the future. One of the examples of that is when you talk about the output, for example, of our plastic renewal technology being fuels, that's not really what I want the end game to be because fuels are combusted and there isn't a circularity associated with it. It is Mm -hmm. better than where we are now. It's good, but the ultimate path is true circularity. So if we take plastics, and we put them into our process, we can actually reuse and recreate plastics with our technology. But we had to start in the beginning because we couldn't find customers four and five years ago that would actually buy renewed plastics and take the raw materials to remake plastics. So we had to start with fuels. So there are a lot of lessons that I've learned. So there's a turning point, And then you learn that this is all a journey and just getting better. 
So most of the listeners, I, I think, understand the concept of circularity. But for those that don't, are you able to explain what is circularity? Yeah, I think really basically what circularity is, when we take something out of the environment, a resource that we then use, after we use that resource, what we seek to do is not have the used resource post-use end up back in the environment as a waste product. But what we seek to do is find a way to fully reuse and continually remake back into the same products so that we're not continually taking from the environment using a single time or very short period of time and then throwing away and creating environmental issues. Mm -hmm. It's a much more efficient way to take products out of the environment that are very useful, but not create massive bad environmental impacts. Plastics are a great example of that. I mean, can you imagine in this year with COVID going through and not having plastics to protect, you know, our first line responders, healthcare workers as we've gone through COVID? You just can't do it, right? Cars are more fuel efficient or actually safer as a result of plastics. Our foods that are preserved in plastics actually don't break down and create greenhouse gases. They're preserved longer. So plastics eliminate waste and greenhouse gases. But the problem is if we don't create a truly circular economy, we use, we dispose, and we put in the environment, and then we see what's going on. I mean, gosh, you go to the beach now and you see plastics all over the place. You know, there's that study that was done a few years ago that says by 2050, there will be more plastics in the ocean than marine life by weight. Oh, we need to find a circular solution here. You just can't ban everything, but using it once, like using a plastic straw, which I'm not a big fan of because I don't, I think there's better alternatives, but some things with plastics we do need to use, but throwing it away immediately, that's just not the answer. Which goes to... Breitmark's goal of eliminating waste completely. Once you have that circularity, there is no waste. There is no waste. But are we perfect now? We're not perfect now. But we're trying to be good and get better every day. But that's really fundamentally at the core of eliminating waste. Now that we understand the problem a little more that Brightmark is working on, I wanted to dig a little deeper into the technology and how it actually works. Like where do they get their plastics from and what's the actual process? So our technology, which is patented, takes plastics and where do we get them from? In the developed world, uh, there is a pretty good waste management infrastructure. And so much of the plastics we get come from waste management companies or from companies. We talked about companies before and their responsibilities or from companies that are forward thinking and are trying to find ways of disposing the industrial plastics that they use. And so those are most of the sources, some of which also the waste management companies come from the homes as well. So we take those plastics and put it into our technology to create usable products. I can describe the technology in a second if you're interested in that, but that it starts with the folks who are collecting the waste plastics, the post-use plastics, and they're brought to us to process. And then what does that process, what does that technology look like? Yeah, so uh, what we do is we get really crazy and super technical, but let me see if I can do it. It's pretty basic what it does. 
So we take the plastics, we chunk them up in, into smaller pieces, basically, and we sort them, dry them, and create pellets, little plastic pellets. Mm-hmm. And those plastic pellets we put into stainless steel uh, vessels that we heat up. And when we heat them up, there's no oxygen, so the plastics are not, you know, there's not a combustion type of thing there. We heat up the plastics, and uh, when we heat the plastics up, it creates sort of a vapor, a gas, that we then cool. And when we cool, it turns into a liquid. So the liquids we process from the plastic pellets in our vessels, and we create the different products from those. So the liquids currently in this facility in Northeast Indiana are, as we talked about before, fuels immediately. Ultra-low sulfur diesel, which is, from a diesel perspective, the most environmentally form of diesel that uh, is commercial. And then naphtha, which is a blend stock that goes in to make gasoline. But that particular product can actually be used and will be used ultimately as a feedstock to remake plastics, circularity there. And then the other output of that facility is paraffin wax, candle wax. If you've got, you know, you take a bath and you might have a bright mark candle there uh, beside you. Food grade wax, which is pretty common, which actually protects food and keeps them from spoiling that type of thing. So those are the three main products that we have currently. Ultimately, that whole stream of liquids that comes out of those stainless steel vessels will be used to remake plastics because now we actually have folks that are the suppliers of plastics who are coming to us across the globe and saying, we want to take your product. We can make plastics out of the plastics are thrown away. How do we find a way to work with you? That's the goal. And that's what we're really excited about. But again, it's the progression. Progression was five years ago, people wouldn't talk to us. The only thing we could sell was a commodity that people would buy, which is a gasoline product and a diesel fuel and wax. And now what we have with social consciousness, some regulation is a lot of companies saying we want to reuse and help partner with you and create a truly circular solution for these plastics. So it was more so you were a little early five years ago, there wasn't that pressure from these other companies to think about how they're making their products. Yeah, we were we were earlier in some respects, but you know, how do you time things exactly perfectly? I'm excited with where we are. So this is where the optimism comes in. We were a little bit early, but the thing that's really important to me and I think to all of us is we're not too late, but we must act, right? And so to have a solution like ours where you can, and our our technology is economically sustainable, meaning that we can do it and create the right incentives for people to work with us. And it's very scalable. And so what that means is economic and scalable, we can help solve the plastic problem across the globe. And so that's really, really important. And the other thing too, that's a little bit of a differentiator is we can take all the plastics So if you look at that water bottle, it has a number one on the bottom of it. There's numbers one through seven. And until now, uh, there hasn't really been a solution that has allowed us to take all the one through sevens and reprocess them. 
I've, I talked about this on another podcast recently. I just realized this number system. I think it was because of Seaspiracy where they mm -hmm. explained the number system and what could and and I've seen different I've seen different posts on on what can and can't be recycled. So, but when I'm the consumer going to throw something in recycling or not, <laughs> I don't. I need like that app right in front of my face to work out which I can recycle or not. It's, it's confusing. Oh, it's confusing. I mean, and you know, I happen to live in the state of California and we've got three bins in my community, actually a uh, community I lived in before in California had four bins. Well, guess what? Some of the stuff that goes in the bins, including the plastics is not being recycled, even though we think it is, there's a term we use for that. That's called wish cycling. Yeah. So we're yeah, trying yeah. to end wish cycling, right? Which is hoping and wishing it happens because, you know, there's an environmental impact to that, which is a sort of ends up in the same place, but it also discourages people, right? And so it leads us on, and because when we find out and we do find out that, oh, you mean I've been sorting and throwing these plastics in this bin and really nothing's happening, that creates an immense level of frustration, frankly, distrust. And that we're, we're here, we want to be absolutely open and honest because this facility is game-changing in Ashley, Indiana. Are we capturing plastics right now from the Yangtze River, which is the number one polluter in the world by far of ocean plastics? We are not. But we want to get there and we want to work with others so that ultimately we go from wishing we're cycling to actually doing it. And so that's the imperative. And, and so we're optimistic, but we need help to do it. Because one company cannot solve all the problems. We have a technical solution that will absolutely do it and can do it. We're, we're just one part of the solution at Brightmark, though. I actually fundamentally believe that we need to reduce consumption as well. There's an intellectual honesty that we need to have around this. And intellectual honesty for me says that, you know, should I really be using a plastic straw when there's another alternative? I don't think so. Right. Do we need the you know, personal protective mask or plastics for IV tubes or plastics in cars? We probably do. So I just I think that old Chinese proverb, there's many paths to the top of the mountain. We need to exhibit the many paths to the top of the mountain to get there. And we're, we're one part of it. But the whole notion of wish cycling and confusion, we need to figure out how to solve that problem. Now that we understand their solution for taking plastics and turning that into renewable energy, what about the animal waste? How does that work? And where did that come into the whole timeline of Brightmark as a company? So our first real project we had was a project that takes, takes the waste from a chicken processing plant that is put into a large lagoon that has a cover on it. So when we throw away, if we eat too much and we're not thoughtful, you know, there's something on the plate and it ends up in the garbage or there's too many bananas we have in the house. I'm guilty of that every once in a while. And I feel, I do feel guilty. When those products start to decay, they create greenhouse gases. So our first investment was in a chicken processing plant that if we do not install our equipment there would create methane that would go into the environment. I don't know if you know, but methane over a 20 year life is 84 more times contaminating the environment as a greenhouse gas 
than mm. CO2 is. It's a really big problem. So what do we do? We take and we did that first sort of RNG investment we did there is we, we installed equipment there where you take the renewable natural gas, we clean it up. And in that particular um, facility, we produce energy out of it and we actually produce steam and heated water to sanitize that facility. So we take what would otherwise be methane and use it to cleanly generate electricity and heated water and steam for that plant there. And the comparing it to producing methane, that is a negative carbon solution. That first project, when we opened or founded Brightmark in August of 16, that was our first project. So we started there. And then being mission-oriented, what we looked for was in that food and animal waste area, what is an area where we can have a real impact, so a big marketplace, that would offset the greatest amount of greenhouse gases. And so most of our projects now are associated with manures on farms. Dairy farms are by far our largest application of that. Manure uh, on farms ends up oftentimes going into lagoons as well in big pits in the ground with water. It creates methane, it contaminates the environment. So we use that turn it into gas. And in those applications, we clean up the gas, we pressurize it, and we put it in gas pipelines. Those projects are among the most negative carbon projects in the world. Actually, solar and wind are low carbon, but slightly positive carbon. So if we want a net carbon zero future, we need some negatives, like our negative carbon RNG projects, uh, to offset the positives. Bob, I grew up on a dairy farm, so I am familiar with that pit. (laughs) <laughs> that oh, manure yeah. pit. <laughs> oh, oh, it smells good. It's bad. It? Yeah. <laughs> it is bad. I saw a video on Brightmark's Instagram actually, and 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 it was with one of these farmers, and there was a great line he had. It it does his heart some good. I think he said. I'm paraphrasing there. What's it like when you are actually talking to these farmers and about this new technology? No, the stories are great. You know, the farmers, so you grew up on a farm, you know this, right? So people think of farmers as some corporation somewhere, some big bad. Most of the farms that I see are family farms and they can be big family farms, but our farmers are closer to the environment than most of us are. I happen to spend most of my time in a city. I'm disconnected from the environment largely um, because my food is processed by the time it gets to me and all that kind of stuff. So our farmers, they actually live and die by sustainability. So these farming communities, if, you know, crops, for example, if we, if we take the nutrients out of the land, they can't produce crops. The other thing, too, is our farmers on the dairy side of the business, if the manures go unchecked, it actually can have a bad impact on the dairy cows as well. And it affects their livelihood and it affects their communities. So I would say for me, my experience is that our farmers out there, uh, that many of us just don't really connect with that often, are really concerned about sustainability. extremely concerned and they worry about it. So when I sit down at the kitchen table and I've done it with a lot of our farmer partners and talk about the solution that we have that deals with the methane in those manure pits. And so it helps environmentally. And by the way, so this is an incentive alignment thing as well. And by the way, we can afford that 
that farm and many dairy farmers economically are pretty close always to, you know not making a lot of money maybe this year they have a loss maybe a little bit of income we can actually afford an economic incentive for doing good those dairy farmers so they awesome. they i mean they're close to the environment so they love the environmental solution and if you can help their farm be more sustainable economically and help the environment sustainability it gets them really excited At this point in the conversation, you can tell Bob is a genuine optimist. So I wanted to understand if him knowing that about himself, if that informed what type of company values Brightmark was going to have and the culture that he set out to create and what other attributes he was looking for in team members. Optimism and grit are really important. In fact, so I don't know if you've heard this before, so a little bit of a question for you. Do you know what the happiest uh, animal is on the face of the earth? I don't, but I'm very interested in what the answer is. It's a goldfish. And the reason why is because a goldfish has a 10 second memory and <laughs> it just forgets and moves on. So grit and optimism. So for us, we made mistakes and yet we try to be like the goldfish. We don't necessarily forget the mistakes, but we learn from them and we just swim on and keep going. So grit and optimism all like sort of born out of this desire, this whole team we have desire to create a world without waste. And I think that's one of the most important ingredients here is when you found a company, you have this mission that you, you seek, you have this ethos that you want. And so with in, in learning from past mistakes, I've worked in companies that maybe didn't have great cultures, weren't as mission oriented, start with a mission and then have a culture with intention you want to create because if you don't with intention do it your culture creates itself and can go in places that you don't want so it's not just bob right in fact it isn't really bob it's this team that we have at brightmark that's really centered around the mission the culture and our values which are super important to us so that's how you persevere that's how you keep going even when you do make mistakes so those values, grit and optimism, they were both personal values that end up being Brightmark company values as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're extremely intentional about our values and culture and uh, what we do. And I try before everyone joins, we're sort of getting a little bit bigger now, but before people join is to actually talk to them from my heart about what our culture and values are about. And definitely as they start, if I don't get them before, I talk with with all the folks that join the team about that because it's just so important to us. There's, we have them written down and we do our best to live them. Again, I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm just as imperfect as anyone, but we try to be better every day and living those. As you scale and as you, you're opening up plants across the US, you're going to get a bigger team. How do you scale that? How do you scale company culture? Is there ways that you implement certain activities that you demonstrate that, that grit and optimism? I, I think one of the important things is if we all start with culture and values that this team agrees uh, to and is passionate about, then what you do is you empower your team and lay down the gauntlet. Like, how do we ensure ourselves that as we grow, that we don't change and go to different places? And so with the empowerment, 
I can't take credit for this. We have a team that, as you go back a few years ago, that actually got together and said, hey, Bob, hey, you know, the folks, the executives that run the company, we would like to create a set of culture teams around each one of our cultural attributes and have each one of you as executives help sponsor and not guide us, but participate. And so each one of our cultural attributes, we have teams. And so everyone who joins the company is part of a cultural team. And we have different activities around what we do. And every single month, we have a communication vehicle with the team that goes through things like business results, et cetera, but also goes through the culture teams and what is this culture team doing and that culture team doing. But it's all around the empowerment of the team and the desire. So folks come in with the mission are like, man, we want to work in a culture like this. It's amazing how it takes its own life. And it's just, yeah, just awesome. So when you are looking at new candidates, when you're going through the hiring process, you have the company values, but are there any other attributes outside of the expertise that they need for the particular role? Are there attributes that you're specifically looking for that you think will be a great fit for the Brightmark culture? Yeah, it just starts with passion around what we're doing. I mean, I would tell you, so you mentioned technical expertise. Of course, that's important. We want really, really excellent people. But if all things are equal and you've got someone who are just saying, I love this mission. I want to be a part of this uh, versus someone who's, you know, sort of nods their head and says, yeah, I, yeah, great. But you, you can just tell the enthusiasm maybe isn't as up there as some other folks. The person who's got the enthusiasm around it, obviously with the technical competence, I'm going there every time because, you know, when you hit the hard times, when you hit the doggone it, we made a mistake, or maybe this project didn't turn out exactly how we wanted, like what drives you, right? What is it that's motivating? So, and you know, we talked about happiness before in the goldfish is a little, little fun thing, but you know, there, there are studies out there about what makes people happy. And since the industrial revolution, the wealth of nations and individuals, the standard of living has gone up pretty dramatically. Right. There's bad impacts that have happened that we're trying to fix associated with the Industrial Revolution. But if you were to look at the wealth and yet the happiness, it stays the same. There is not a correlation of making money in your job and happiness. There is a correlation around waking up and doing something you spend half or a really good portion of your life doing and loving doing it. And that's what gets you through. So as we bring folks on the team. If we know that they're excited around what we do and really believe in the culture and the values we talk about, as times, as we go through the inevitable peaks and valleys of a business, they're going to be there with us. And in the end, we think that they're going to be happier too. Talking about that enthusiasm, is there an example of where you've seen that being demonstrated well before you've met in person. So when you are going through a hiring process and resumes and cover letters are coming in, or has there been an example of someone reaching out to you when there wasn't an advertised position and just showing that enthusiasm somehow? Yeah, so many times. You know, in the beginning, it was more quiet because nobody knew who we were at Brightmark. And obviously, as you know, there's been you know more publicity, more learnings around what we're about. I, I get that all the time. I really do. And 
There are, I mean, there are a lot of examples. I mean, there's, there's so many people. I'm here close to our facility right now as we speak in Ashley, Indiana. I can think, I don't know, almost a dozen people that we've hired that came and sent me a personal note and said, you know what? I don't care what I do. I want to be a part of this. I know you've got the facility in Indiana. And so what I'll do the moment I hear somebody say that, I connect them with my HR people and, you know, the the plant manager and say, you know, we should really take a look at this person. So it's happened so many times and literally I, I get the exact number, but it's at least a dozen and I'll do anything. I'll sweep the floor. So when somebody does that, you know, that's a great start. So, yeah, it absolutely has happened. And we've had others, college students who, so we've had, we've got one college student that, you know, on an internship, completely changed the degree program into a sustainability track as a result of spending a little bit of time for us. Now, you do a good job on an internship and you're so moved that you change your degree uh, program sustainability. Do you think I want that person? You better believe I do. To get a better idea of what the future is looking like at Brightmark for people that are interested in your mission, excited about what you're doing. You obviously have a careers page, but is there somewhere that they can go to kind of dig up some more information in terms of what, what is happening? What are you launching? new plants, where could that opportunity be for them to come in and do whatever just because they love the, the mission so much? I, I think our website actually is really well done. And uh, and I'll say that with, you know, with humility. So there are definitely things that you can learn about, you know, for example, our facility in Ashley. We've got great videos. In fact, we've got a video that's sort of told through the eyes of the son of one of our folks on the team here, Jude. Um, Jude Peterson, and it's really cute, but it tells the story. And we also have, you know, I mentioned the chicken processing plant. We have a great video of the facility. It's located in Sumter, South Carolina, down here in the States. And it's actually told through the eyes of the sort of facility manager there who happens to be an environmentalist. And he has this old Southern accent and his storytelling is amazing. So there's some good storytelling that you can see there. There's information. If you look on our website around the projects and what they do, certainly we have uh, a listing of jobs there as well. Uh, we've got a YouTube channel, so you can check that out. And I would say check other things. So if you think about where we're headed, we've told here in the States, we told folks that we want to do more of these plastics facilities throughout the U.S. And we've actually announced locations, sort mm -hmm. of a northeast, southeast, and then Gulf Coast set of locations for the next set of plants there. So you can begin to see where we're beginning to do those. And then if you watch the announcements on our renewable natural gas part of our business as well, you can see when we announce construction, we've got construction out projects, east coast to west coast, north to south. So there's a lot of opportunities there as well. Info at brightmark.com is a really good spot to go, or we do have the career part that has its own sort of link and email address. I'm going to put all these links as well, but your team does such a good job as well on the content that you're putting out on your social social platforms as well. Well, the young kids, I've got it. See, this is the thing. It's the young kids, right? Do you think, I mean, I'm pretty basic with Instagram, but it's all the kids who are enthusiastic about or doing all that great stuff. It's not me. If it were left to me, it would be sort of, you know, old dad kind of, kind of stuff. So they're the ones that are creating the excitement. You don't have a TikTok profile yet, Bob? 
I do, so I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you do? All right. Yeah, I, well, right, but I haven't posted anything, so I'm not going to lie. I The TikTok videos I love are the dance TikTok videos. Like, I'm really yeah. into music. Those are amazing, but let's let's just keep that between you and me. We won't tell anyone. I think TikTok <laughs> is awesome. I just haven't produced any content, and you don't want to see me dance. Well, there you go. Uh, people uh, listening that do want to reach out to Brightmark, maybe you send Bob a TikTok uh, dancing video to get some interest. <laughs> that could be a way the way in. Good music, good dance. That's uh, that's what we're talking about here at Brightmark, Bob. Thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining all the awesome work that you're doing. I'm excited for uh, what you're doing and, and what you have planned for the future. And I'm sure that you're going to reach that goal of eliminating waste completely. Well, thanks, Dale. And absolutely. So remember, the future is bright. Mark. I love having conversations with people like Bob who are just so enthusiastic and have a positive outlook on the future ahead of us, even though they're working on really difficult problems. It sounds like Brightmark have an incredible culture that they've created. So if you're interested in Brightmark's mission of eliminating the world's waste, then hit Bob up and take his advice. Tell him that you would work in any role because you believe in their mission. That is a sure way of getting an interview or at least a follow-up conversation. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe. I'd love to have you here with our community of good humans that are dedicated to working on the world's biggest problems. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, keep doing you and keep doing good.